Father in heaven, thank you for this community. Thank you for raising from the dead. Thank you for creating this beautiful world that you've placed us in. Thank you for saving us from our sins, Jesus. And tonight, as we come and celebrate your resurrection, um, we also want to declare this space your kingdom. And we want to declare ourselves your, your followers and your disciples. And yet, even when I say that, I know many of us wrestle with what that means and where we are. Um, and some of us even struggle to believe that you're real. But we're here tonight, God, and I ask that you would honor that and that you would give us the courage to believe what is true and to push aside what is false and that we would be honest, God, that you would, you would, your Holy Spirit would be honest in a way that we could be honest with ourselves about the ways we're hiding, the ways that we're afraid, the ways that we really aren't being straightforward with you. I ask that you would give us the courage to face those tonight and also the courage to celebrate and to speak of you And I ask all of that in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. So tonight is is Easter. And I just want to talk a little bit about the New Testament. Um, If you don't know, the Christian scriptures are the Old and the New Testament, two collections of spiritual writings. And in the New Testament, it is mostly a biography of Jesus. And it's mostly uh, about the church, what happens to Jesus' followers, and then the instructions on how to follow Jesus. And if you believe that it's inspired, meaning you believe that the words that are written in the New Testament are words that are absolutely true and they're God's words spoken through men, then when you come to the resurrection and the empty tomb, you have to believe it. If it's true, if it's inspired, then you have to believe it and you have to deal with it. That Jesus came and he was God and he died for your sins and he rose from the dead. If you believe that maybe it's not inspired, but it is a very, very reliable document, meaning kind of like you missed Easter service, and so you listened to me on the the internet, you would probably have a pretty accurate idea of what I was saying, but you might actually have some misunderstandings because you don't get to see my body language, you don't understand all the context, but you would be confident enough to pass on to somebody else what I said and say, this is what Eric said, and you would be pretty confident that that is what I said. If you believe the New Testament is like that, then you have to believe that Jesus was God, that he died, and that he rose again from the dead. And you have to deal with the implications of that. Now, if you come to the scriptures and you decide to apply what historians apply, like the the most stringent historical, you know, document you know way you analyze documents to see if they are actually true and that you can make accurate statements about them then probably there's just a few things that you can actually stay say and historians will tell you this every historian who's worth his salt will say that yes jesus was born in the first century right he was 
a real person, and that he died on the cross, a real death, and the tomb was empty. You can go to almost any university in the United States, and the majority of the historians will tell you, yes, the tomb was empty. And they will say, his disciples thought that they saw him. They thought that they saw him. And the reason that they are willing to say that happens to be because they like this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so I want to read that to you. So if you have a Bible, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, you can just listen to me. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3, the Apostle Paul says this to the Corinthians. He says, For what I have received, I have passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Now, historians have figured out with a high degree of certainty that the early church was saying this creed six months to a year after Jesus died. So they believed this very simple thing very, very early on, that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose from the dead, and that he appeared to people. So the reality is that no matter who you are in the 21st century, what you have to deal with is the empty tomb. You have to deal with it and what it means to you. Now, you can reject that Jesus was God, but you at least have to deal with it. You have to wrestle with it. Now, all of you are here tonight, I suspect, because at some level you believe that Jesus changed things, that you've had some taste of that. There's some reason that you're here tonight, right? But if you're anything like me, often you come to Easter with the weight of everything, right? You come to church in the evening with the weight of everything. And most of us end up coming to Easter, I think, with three things in our hands. One of these or all of them. Number one, some of us have just had some really dramatic experiences with God. We've had a dramatic experience with God, and yet now it feels really dry. And there's a despair in our heart. Like we just don't feel connected to God. Once, we can look back and say, once I was connected, but now I don't feel that. I just feel numb inside. Right? Some of us feel that. Some of us come to Easter and we think this story is ridiculous. Like I believe it, but I'm not going to say it out loud, right? I'm not going to talk about the resurrection to anybody. I'm not going to talk about my faith to anybody. Like, we have shame about being a Christian, and we have some shame and fear about how silly the resurrection actually sounds to us. We believe it, but we're afraid. 
So we come to Easter afraid. Or we come to Easter with despair. And some of us come to Easter because we just have this big thing of doubt in our heart. We just, every time we come to think about following Jesus, we have this thing like, ah, it, it just doesn't seem right. Our brain, it, it, it's, it's difficult for our brain to really get itself around the idea that Jesus was God and that Jesus needed to die for our sins and that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and appeared all... It, it's just an element of doubt. But the thing that all of us wrestle with when we're coming with those things, the thing that we know deep in our hearts is that the world really is broken. Like at least the first part of that creed where, we, where it says that Christ died for our sins. We know that we're broken. And we know this world is broken. Like this week, I've talked about with people about bombs that were dropped on Afghanistan, mustard gas, rockets, a fire chief shooting people at, at Firebird. Like we, we, have, we can go on and on about the violence and the evil, and then that doesn't even get to me personally and my own selfishness. Right? We know that things are broken. And so that kind of fuels our despair and our fear and our doubt. But I actually think Easter is not a despairing, fearful, doubting kind of thing. Easter is exciting. And Jesus' resurrection on that morning has something to say to all of us. And so tonight, I would like for you, if you have your Bibles, to turn to John chapter 20. And I want to look at what Jesus has to say to those three things. To those of us who despair, for those of us who fear, and to those of us who doubt. I think Jesus has something to say. John chapter 20 starts out with a character named Mary Magdalene. And she has gone to the tomb to, take, to finish taking care of Jesus. Now you've got to know about Mary. Mary was delivered from eight demons, right? And when I've talked about this before, I've basically told you that to be possessed by eight demons is like having shingles times 20, okay? Shingles are internal chicken pox, and they're horrible, right? They're, they're not nice. Like, ask somebody who's had them or ask a doctor to explain them to you, but they're brutal, and if somebody were going to deliver you from shingles times 20, you would, you would worship them. You would follow them wherever they go. I love watching people who go to chiropractors and then those chiropractors deliver them from some kind of pain. They become the evangelists of that chiropractor. They want you to go to the chiropractor to be delivered from your pain. And then if you meet another person who's had met a different chiropractor and they get together, you have conflicting evangelists who really just love chiropractors, but there's they, you know, what kind of chiropractor is he? You know, you go well, become evangelists, right? Because and they become devoted. Anyone who delivers you from pain in a significant way, you're going to be devoted to him. And Mary was devoted. And if you read through the Gospel of Luke, you will see that Mary probably runs a lot of things. 
that that under you know she's she's everywhere she's at the cross she's i think she runs things right but she's she's headed there to take care of jesus and the tomb is empty and so she runs back to peter and john and she tells them that it's empty and they take off running right and it's a foot race between a little tiny skinny guy and a really big guy and and peter loses and john but john is like me john's a little cautious so he gets to the tomb and he's looking in and and peter just barrels straight in he doesn't you know he's looking around and it says that they believed and went home they believed he rose from the dead and went home i don't know what they did but mary stood there because she was not satisfied she wanted to know where he was And so we pick up the story in verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord, and she told them that what he had said, or that he had said these things to her. So Mary is sitting there crying. You have to understand, here's a woman who was delivered from eight demons. And she's desperate. And there's despair. The person who who offered her life is gone. And she's just hoping for something, some taste of something. And I love it because, you know, here at the village, if you've been in a pilgrim group, which is our little Bible studies that we do, we say, never ask a why question. But apparently why questions are godly because angels ask them and so does Jesus. Um, so it's okay, apparently, to ask why questions. But he, they say, why are you crying? And she explains, and Jesus says, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And then he says her name. When it comes to Easter, and for us who are in a place of despair, Jesus speaks our name. I think that's important. Because Jesus says earlier in, in Matthew that if you seek him, you'll be found by him. And coming to Easter and to the empty tomb with your despair, the way that you're going to be found is when somebody says your name. Right? I remember... And, and your reaction when someone says your name 
is that you're going to want to like grab a hold of them, right? And you're going to want to savor that experience because you already had a dramatic experience. And so you're going to want to savor this one. I remember when I, we moved to Tucson and it was the eighth grade and I, it was my first day of junior high and I was supposed to catch the bus and I didn't catch the bus. So I thought, oh, I know where my home is. I didn't. And so I'll start walking. So four hours later, with no money, I walked all the way from Vail Junior High, all the way down to the U of A, and then all the way back up to, uh, I think it was Swan and um, Columbus area to get home. And I remember walking into our apartment, and there's my mom and two policemen, and she's like sobbing, and she runs up and grabs hold of me. She's like, Eric, where have you been? Right? There's something very unique about your name being said. And then in a dramatic moment, you want to cling to someone. And it's really interesting that Jesus says, no, 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 don't hold on to me. I have to go to the Father, and you have to go here. Here's the thing about us who have dramatic experiences with God, and then kind of, and we're kind of up and down like this, is that we always want to live up here. We always want to live up here. And we get very, we get just very downtrodden when we don't have the experience and yet really the thing that the empty tomb says to you is it's jesus saying your name and then he's saying go do what you need to do go tell people what you need to tell people so for those of you who are like in the place of like i just don't have any experience of god right now i had one and i just feel empty the empty tomb jesus speaks your name He wants to know what's going on. But at the same time, the resurrection says, no, you need to go do your thing and I'm going to go do my thing. You need to go follow through. There is a thing to do. There is a direction to go. The second thing is that a lot of us come, like I said, to the empty tomb to the resurrection with a fear and a doubt or a fear not necessarily a doubt but just like the disciples starting in verse 19 it says on the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the jews jesus came and stood among them and said peace be with you after that he said this he showed them his hands and his side the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the lord Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. There are two things that somebody needs when they're afraid. You need peace and you need power. When you have anxiety, you do not have peace right? You, you begin to fret about something, and then that fret becomes heavier, and then that fret becomes such a weight on your chest that you can't think straight, and you end up hiding in a locked room, wondering what you're going to do, right? And the resurrection is Jesus appearing to those of us who were afraid, and the first thing he says is peace. The empty tomb says peace. The victory over death says peace. But peace isn't enough because when you're afraid, 
you don't feel like you have any power. When you're afraid, you don't feel like you have any power. And yet, when you come to Easter, the thing that Jesus says to you is you do have power. You have the Spirit of God. You have the Spirit of God. Remember last week I said that Paul tells us that the Spirit that raised Jesus is the Spirit that is in you when you embrace Jesus. You have an opportunity to be transformed. Think about it this way. When Jesus died and he went into hell, he grabbed death by the neck and dragged it into the present. Right? He dragged it into the present. If you've seen The Matrix, right? At the very end of The Matrix, when Neo, like, begins to see the Matrix and they're firing the bullets at him and he's like, do, 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 and he catches them. There was a glitch in the Matrix. The resurrection is somebody came back from the dead and they're not going to die again, right? And that changes everything because that person can give you power. And if he breathes the spirit on you that raised him from the dead, you have power, and the power that the disciples are given is the power to forgive sins. So when you're afraid, when you don't think you have the words to say, the resurrection says you don't need the words to say. What you come with is the glitch in the matrix. You don't need to play by the rules anymore because you have a different king. There's no reason to be afraid. For those of us who are afraid, the resurrection says peace and power. But for those of us who doubt, our saint is Thomas. For those of us who just wrestle with the idea of Jesus being God, verse 24, it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, there's there's an interesting scene here. Like I said to you, historically, we're in a point in time where all of us have to deal with the empty tomb. All of us are at a point where at some level, Jesus is in front of us and he's saying, put your finger in my side. But I think it's really interesting that Jesus says to Thomas, what a mom says or a dad says to his child. It's, it, it is fascinating to me. He says, well, I'm a, I lost it. Ah. Stop doubting and believe. He doesn't say, now, 
Here are the philosophical reasons why you should believe. Here are the, the defenses. No, he just says, stop doubting and believe. He doesn't say, here's the mechanisms to stop doubting. Here's the mechanisms to believing. Here are all the choices you have to make. No, he just says, stop. So here's what the empty tomb says to you if you're in a place of doubt. It actually says, stop doubting and believe. But attached to that, Jesus offers you a blessing because you don't get the privilege of Thomas. What he says is that for those of us who didn't see Jesus' nail holes and the the wound in his side, those of us who didn't get put our fingers in there, we actually have a greater faith than the disciples. The empty tomb and the profession of belief in Jesus as God means that you have a greater faith than the disciples themselves. It's a very powerful gift. So when you come to the resurrection with your doubt, know that Jesus enters in very parentally with you and says, stop. Kind of does the Nancy Reagan thing. Just say no, right? And and here's the thing. The reason he says that is because all of you have volition. All of you stop at stoplights. And you don't have any angst about stopping at stoplights. You just do, right? You believe that stoplights are good to stop at. Like, we have lots of these things in our life, right? But then when it comes to the empty tomb, then we're like, oh, well, we need to have all these philosophical things. But Jesus says, no, 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 stop doubting and believe. Now, these are are good things, I think, for you to hold on to. When, When you're despairing, the resurrection, Jesus calls your name. He, he honors your seeking and your desperateness. In the resurrection, when you're afraid, he doesn't mock you for your fear. He says peace. The resurrection says peace, and here's power. And when you doubt, he does say, hey, stop doubting and believe. But every one of these seems to indicate that the key to it is that you need to go. You need to do something. That part of what the resurrection is about is that you and I are sent to offer something good and to find and engage Jesus. And the real question is, where is Jesus? If he's not in the tomb, then where is he? Where is Jesus? If we turn to Matthew um, Chapter 25. There's a parable that I just want to read half of to you in verse 31. It's called The Sheep and the Goats. When the Son of Man comes, and Son of Man is Jesus, comes into his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in the heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, 
When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king replied, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Where did Jesus go? Jesus went to the least of these. That's where he is now. You want to find Jesus. You want to go out of your despair and out of your fear and out of your doubt. Where you're going to find Jesus is in the least of these. And if you remember Rod's sermon just a few weeks ago, that would be us. We are the least of these. And that's where you're going to find Jesus. That we're sent to one another We're sent to our neighbor. We're sent to the people around us because we live in this place where the world is broken. But Jesus is very clear at the beginning of his ministry. It's prophesied about him in Isaiah 61 that he will be with the downtrodden and the enslaved and the brokenhearted. That's where he is, and that's where he sends us. So so where do you go from the empty tomb? You are called to go to the least of these. So let me tell you a story. Um, And if we have time, we'll do questions. If not, I'll just close. But when I was a junior in high school, um, in Rincon High School, junior hall on the corner was chemistry. And after chemistry class, I was talking to the teacher. And there was this guy whose name was Chris. who was headed down the hallway. Now, you got to understand, I, I want, you've actually some of you met Chris because he's come here, but he had his dad's brown UPS pants on. He was skinny. Dad was not skinny. So they're cinched. He had glasses with tape in the middle, his big backpack on, and his head down, and a bouffant of a hairstyle. like psh, And he was marching down the middle of the junior hall, and I, I guarantee it was just... You know, it was, it was basically the Red Sea parting because he was not going to stop. And I didn't know him. i just seen him around. And this weird, the Holy Spirit, indigestion, I don't know what it was. But I heard, you need to go ask him to come over to your house. So I just ran over and I remember tapping him on the shoulder and he turned around at me and he glared and he said, what? And I said, you want to come over to my house to play board games? I don't know. <laughs> and... He said, oh, yeah, sure. So <laughs> we, exchanged, we exchanged numbers, and that started a friendship, a friendship where I invited him to church, and I told him about Jesus. And you have to know about him. He was super smart, and he was the valedictorian of his class when he graduated, and they actually would not let him make his speech because you have to submit your speech, and his speech was basically how much better he was than all of them because they had all basically brutalized him for four years. And he said, well, and I'm going, you know. So... He, he was that kind of person, very hard to, to be around. But I, I loved Chris. I got, helped him get a job at Carl's Jr. We went to Ross and got new clothes, which was important. Um, and he hung out in my house, and my mom was like his second mom and helped him deal with his, his world. He never became a Christian while we were in high school. I wanted him to become a Christian. I wanted him to know Jesus. We just argue and argue and, and, and play board games. Um, And then six months after he graduated, 
I get a letter in the mail, not a phone call, a letter in the mail from a pastor saying, I just baptized Chris, and when I asked him who he wanted to know, you and his mother were the only two he wanted to know. About four years ago, he called me and said, Eric, I got married, and I have a baby, and I want you to fly up, and I want you to dedicate my child. And so there I am, like, I got to go up to Seattle, and I'm sitting in this crazy, lovely church, and uh, and it's super multicultural because he married an Indonesian girl, and I'm just holding this little baby, and I'm like, this all happened because I this one little stupid invitation to come play board games with me. And there I'm holding this baby, and I got to hang out with his family, and then just two years ago, his mother killed herself, and he called me and said, I'm coming down, will you do the funeral? And there was just like four of us. It was me, it was him, it was dad, and the brother of his mother. And and that was the weirdest funeral I've ever done. But But it was powerful for me to see the transformation that God had done in this person's life. Like when I was holding that baby, when I was sitting at the funeral, I'm like, God is just, this is crazy what he's done. And then he just stopped by the church about six months ago to say that he, his dad had told him he has a long lost brother um, that his dad never told him about. Um, and he wanted me to pray that, that it would go well because he was trying to contact him. Um, Chris doesn't talk to me much. Chris isn't very socially, you know, um, adept, I guess would be. But I love Chris, and I love what the gospel has done in his life and the way that he's transformed me. And that's what the resurrection is about for me. That when I despair, there is a story of God's movement, his resurrection. And when I'm afraid, I remember walking through that hallway and asking, and when I doubt and think this whole thing is stupid and silly, I remember standing there with that little baby in my hands thinking, this is crazy. This is crazy. That's what the resurrection means to me. That's what the empty tomb means. Yeah, I do come with sorrow and despair and fear and doubt. But the empty tomb gets me excited because I've seen Jesus in the least of these and I know that I am the least of these and he's changed me. And, he's, and, I, and this church, obviously, for me, is also that story. 